Welcome to Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. Each week we'll walk you through the Epicurean text and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at epicureanfriends.com where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. We're now in the middle of a series of podcasts intended to provide a general overview of Epicurean philosophy based on the organizational structure employed by Norman DeWitt in his book, Epicurus and His Philosophy. Now let's join the discussion. Welcome to episode 162 of Lucretius Today. Our goal for today was to begin the discussion of the subsection entitled Anticipations in Chapter 8, but unfortunately, Joshua is not with us, so we're going to just do a very abbreviated introduction for just a few minutes. The first thing DeWitt says is this, quote, The second criterion of truth is the prolepsis or anticipation, such as the innate sense of justice. Between sensations and anticipation, there's an obvious bridge of connection. The innate capacity to distinguish color is an anticipation of experience, no less than the innate capacity to distinguish between justice and injustice. The difference is that color sense is part of the individual's preconditioning for life in his physical environment and emerges early in childhood, while the sense of justice is part of the preconditioning for life in the social environment and emerges later, developing in pace with experience, instruction, and reflection. How the anticipations function as a criterion of truth may be seen in the case of the gods. It's impossible to think of them as in need of anything, for example, because according to the idea universal among men, their happiness is perfect. We'll reserve the detail for next week, but we can talk for a few minutes about the different sources of information on this topic and some really important articles that someone who's digging into it would want to investigate. The section on anticipations in DeWitt starts on page 142, and we'll be using that as the guide as we discuss it. But there are many, many different articles out there on anticipations, one of the most important of which and recent of which and best of which is called Epicurean Preconceptions by Vula Suna. What we'll find, both Masuna does and DeWitt does, is to contrast a couple of different major sources of information on anticipations. The first of which is Diogenes Laertius, where he has a paragraph on what anticipations are about. And then there's a section in Cicero's On the Nature of the Gods, in which he has an Epicurean speaker that he calls Valeus talk about how anticipations are involved in the conception that he alleges all men have about the nature of divinity. There's also reference in, of course, Epicurus's letters and in the principal doctrines about words that come close to this issue without sometimes being anticipations themselves. And also there's discussion in Lucretius in which there is no specific section devoted to anticipations, but there are numerous references which can easily be interpreted to apply to the topic. The starting point of most discussion of anticipations comes in Diogenes Laertius before he gets into the letter to Herodotus, the letter to Pythocles, or any of the other major letters, Diogenes says this, quote, Now in the canon, Epicurus affirms that our sensations and preconceptions and our feelings are the standard of truth. The Epicureans generally make perceptions of mental impressions to be also standards. His own statements are to be found in the summary addressed to Herodotus 
and in the principal doctrines, which is an interesting comment right there because he's specifically pointing us to Herodotus and the principal doctrines for Epicurus's own views. And then continuing on, every sensation, he says, is devoid of reason and incapable of memory, for neither is it self-caused nor regarded as having an external cause. Can it add anything thereto or take anything therefrom? And skipping over several passages, this is the key part. Quote, by preconception, they mean a sort of apprehension or a right opinion or notion or universal idea stored in the mind. That is, a recollection of an external object often presented. Such and such a thing is a man. For no sooner is the word man uttered than we think of his shape by an act of preconception in which the senses take the lead. Thus, the object primarily denoted by every term is then plain and clear. And we should never have started an investigation unless we had known what it was that we were in search of. For example, the object standing yonder is a horse or a cow. Before making this judgment, we must at some time or other have known by preconception the shape of a horse or a cow. We should not have given anything a name if we had not first learnt its form by way of preconception. It follows, then, that preconceptions are clear. And then he continues on with material that's in the principal doctrines about whether something is clear or not. Quote, the object of a judgment is derived from something previously clear by reference to which we frame the proposition, e.g., how do we know that this is a man? Opinion they also call conception or assumption, and declare it to be true and false, for it is true if it is subsequently confirmed or if it is not contradicted by evidence, and false if it is not subsequently confirmed or is contradicted by evidence. Hence the introduction of the phrase, that which awaits confirmation, e.g. to wait and get close to the tower and then learn what it looks like at close quarters. Just for reference, I've been reading that from the Epicurus.net page, and there are many different translations of that. In what I've just read, the translator has used the words anticipation or preconception or prolepsis. Cyril Bailey, who's one of the major translators of Epicurus, predominantly just uses the word concept in this section he doesn't say preconcept. He just says concept. So the general subject that we're talking about is related to this issue of concepts. What is a concept? Is a concept an anticipation? Is an anticipation something that feeds into concepts? How are concepts used? There are many different issues involved in the topic that are going to be difficult to separate out. And that would be another point that it is difficult, if not impossible, to come away from all this reading with a very firm conclusion that one of these positions is right and one of them is wrong. Because there's a wide divergence if you focus on Valeus's interpretation of anticipations and how it relates to God's. You come up with a much more innate or intuitive is the word that DeWitt generally uses. You come up with a much more intuitive or automatic process that is feeding into conceptual reasoning. If you focus on what Diogenes Laertius has said, you can end up like Cyril Bailey and basically just say that this is a description of conceptual reasoning that occurs in the mind and that that's basically it. So what you'll find is that these writers who take one position or the other about the nature of anticipations will tend to either accept Diogenes Laertius and downplay Valeus, or they will accept Cicero's Valeus and downplay Diogenes Laertius. And so you take sides between those two at the very beginning. And then what most people do in my reading of the topic is they'll go over to Lucretius and then to other sources looking for evidence that would support their particular position on the subject. 
But in the end, we just don't have a lot of clear statement from Epicurus himself that would allow us to be really firm in our conclusion about what anticipations are. And it's my view that it's better to wait and make some preliminary observations about what anticipations are and how they must work, given the other aspects of Epicurean philosophy that we do have a stronger footing in, and then go forward with a little bit looser interpretation of what anticipations may be. When we move into the issue of thought and how we think and how we construct our ideas and how we use our ideas, that's a lot more complex and harder to take a position on. Maybe the analogy would be this is more like the issue of looking up at the sky and realizing you can't really get close to it. It's harder to be as firm about what the mind is actually doing with things. But Epicurus needed a theory to explain the workings of the mind, just as he has a theory of atoms and void that explains the physical workings of the universe. I think there's an analogy there that what we're working towards with anticipations is filling in the gaps of how the mind is processing the information that the external senses are giving to it, and then using that information and applying it to our experiences in life. In our discussions of anticipations in the past on the forum, many of us have concluded that there's something going on here in relation to pattern recognition, that regardless of whether you start and stop with Diogenes Laertius or not, there clearly is an influence of exposure to something. Your mind is doing something with that exposure and then processing it into how it thinks and reacts in the future. And it would appear that the ability to recognize patterns and then manipulate those patterns and use that information in future thinking is very likely to be a significant part of this process. Is this purely an explanatory consideration to understand the nature of the mind, or is there any kind of practical application in it? Now, there, I think there are huge practical applications because this gets back into what we were talking about over the last several weeks about blank slate versus whether you're born with any kind of innate dispositions. If you follow the Aristotelian blank slate theory and you say that everything in your mind is a result of your experiences, then you would be drawn more to a conclusion that you have probably a greater ability to control all of your thoughts and change all of your thoughts. You know, there's the debate that's framed in terms of nature versus nurture. The blank slate theory of Aristotle would lead you in a direction that nurture, the way you're educated, the way you're brought up, is 100% of the way that you end up, as opposed to nature people who take the position that you are born with innate dispositions that not only lead you to feel pleasure in particular ways and pain in particular ways or see colors in particular ways, but also dispose you to eventually think in particular ways. So that is a tremendously important question of nature versus nurture. And you can contrast it also with what Plato was saying, that the true reality is outside the cave. He came up with this idea that learning things, understanding things is a process of recollection of what you used to know in a prior life before you were born or some ability to come into contact with this other true world that's different than this world. So I think it has many practical implications of how much you should expect to be able to control your own thoughts. Are you solely self-programmable? Did you program yourself through your own experiences from the moment you were born? Or were you born with intuitions or predispositions or instincts? Were you born like a beaver to live in a particular way, just like beavers are born to build dams, just like migratory birds might be programmed to migrate in particular ways? 
Do the patterns of life that are observable in lower life forms, and I'm not using that in a negative way other than to say less sophisticated life forms, do those patterns that exist there, do they all of a sudden cease to exist and cease to apply when you go up the evolutionary scale to human beings? Do humans have any kind of intuitive faculties, dispositions of thought at all? And of course, we try to stay away from politics in this podcast, but it clearly has implications in terms of your interactions with other people, whether you think that they are somehow predisposed at birth to operate in particular ways or whether they're not, whether they're solely, totally programmed through their own experiences after birth. I think that the current understanding is that it's a mix of both nature and nurture working together. So mm -hmm. it's not an either or kind of mm -hmm. thing as far as what the current understanding is. And see, I would say that that is consistent with Epicurus's view. He certainly is not saying that your experiences in life have no impact on you, but he's saying that there are some and these need to be explored and understood. My experience in reading is that the more radical position is taken by the blank slate people by the Aristotelian view, because to me, that's just obviously not true, that you are born just in the same way that your eyes and ears, the rest of your body operates in particular ways. You're born with disposition in every aspect of your life seems to me to be an obvious position. So John Locke, Aristotle, blank slate theory to me seems very difficult to maintain. So again, looking back at what Epicurus would have been dealing with, if he was dealing with Aristotle taking a blank slate position, and he's dealing with Plato taking the position that there's a true world beyond this one in which you're trying to commune with the gods and get past your senses, which are trying to trick you and that can never give you any answers. If that's the framework that Epicurus was dealing with during his time, then he needed to come up with another theory of how the mind operates that rejects both of those alternatives. And I think what we're going to find is that this is Epicurus's application of his scientific method to the issue of thought. It probably relates also to the issue of language that is discussed at some length in Lucretius, the question of how people come up with words. Is there really a difference between a word and a concept, which is where Epicurus is talking in the letter to Herodotus about making sure that your words are clear so that you just don't keep on defining things to infinity? So it really does have lots of practical application. Again, it's your biblical story of the Tower of Babel that, that, and where languages were confounded among all the people, and whether it was God who instituted languages in the first place, questions like that, that do have implications that we really don't spend as much time talking about as we probably should. So the issue of concept formation and processing of information into intelligent discussion and communication, and this question of anticipations and concept formation is probably related to issues that, that are involved in artificial intelligence or intelligence of any kind. How do you take information and process it into a thought process or something we would recognize as intelligence? For example, our eyes see some shape and color and size and brightness in front of us. But the eye doesn't know what this computer screen is that we're looking at. It's only in our minds that we can take this information that our eyes are presenting to us and realize that it's a computer screen, that the words on the screen are something that we should pay attention to and that we can use to construct all sorts of elaborate thoughts. The eyes don't give us that ability. The senses don't give us that ability. So what does give us that ability? The first time a baby looks at a computer screen, he's never seen a computer screen before. How does he come to understand how it's used and so forth? 
Is it purely a mechanical, random, chaotic construction of data that's in front of him? Or does the mind have some disposition to recognize patterns and begin to pull those together into something that's comprehensible to us? Aren't there discussions out there that a baby recognizes human faces first or that there's something special about human faces in the way that we recognize them? Yes, I think Joshua talked about that. I think that's what Epicurus is talking about in the issue of anticipations, a distinction that DeWitt does make. You see several horses, animals that we would describe as horses in front of you, and you basically begin to put together the concept of a horse. You've got the stimulation of the eyes and seeing over time several different objects. And so you can conceive of the possibility that the mind has almost a mechanical ability to apply pictures over each other and begin to assemble a single picture out of these many different pictures. The disposition to do that in the first place is probably related to anticipations. But how quickly you do it, what issues about a horse you conclude are key to the concept of a horse and so forth. That's a very sophisticated process that people can differ on, have different opinions on. And then in the future, when you're applying that standard, you can make mistakes as you look at an animal and decide whether or not it tries to fit in your pattern or not. But even more complicated than looking at horses and coming up with the concept of the horse is what about all these concepts and words that are floating around in your mind that are not attached to something you're looking at or touching or tasting at a particular moment? Would it be considered an anticipation if, for instance, if I thought I understood everything that DeWitt says about what anticipations are, and then I compare that to either something that somebody else says or even the chat GPT, is that considered an anticipation, the knowledge that I have or the thoughts I have of something, basically the definition of something? I'd like to hear if Martin has an opinion about that. I'm going to say the answer to that is no. But Martin, what do you think? I would answer yes. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Explain your yes, and then I'll explain my no. I mean, we we don't have that many legs. So, and if, if, if you really want to account for everything, you really need to have a wide net for the anticipations to include these things. Okay, and let me explain when I said I was going to say no, and you said yes. I think this is a good example of something that would depend on whether you follow the Diogenes Laertius example or whether you would follow the Valeus example. Because the Diogenes Laertius example of looking at men and coming up with the idea of man, looking at horses, coming up with the idea of horses, that's pretty easy to understand and it could be applied to all sorts of thought processes. But the question is whether, for example, Calicini, you use the example of what is DeWitt's interpretation of anticipations. The answer of what is DeWitt's description is a passage of sentences. It's a conceptual explanation. Once you form an explanation in your mind of anything, is that a criteria of truth in the same sense that the eye and the ear is producing data that has no opinion in it and it's just produced because it's there? Or is the understanding that DeWitt has or the understanding that you have, are they processes of conscious thinking in which your opinion is totally involved? It's your opinion of what DeWitt said. When you compare two opinions, is that something that's involved in an automatic process given you by nature, which you can consider to be a criterion of truth? Or is that the equivalent of doing a crossword puzzle on a piece of paper where you're 
putting words down here, you're putting words down there, and you're just comparing the two. If you see where I'm going, if anticipations are a criterion of truth, does an anticipation have an opinion within it? I think an argument can be made from especially the Valais material that anticipations are not supposed to be something which you've created in your own mind, incorporating your opinion about it. In other words, if your opinion is that all zebras are black and white, is that a criterion of truth? Is your definition of zebra a criterion of truth? Or is that just part of your conceptual reasoning processes that can be right or wrong and have nothing to do with what nature tells you? Could it be the difference between levels of complexity? So when you understand an object, like you look at a cat or you look at a dog, your mind's kind of automatically connecting with something there. And that's a very basic level versus something of, say, comparing your own understanding of what DeWitt means about anticipations versus what somebody else says that they think. That's like very complex thinking in comparison. Yeah, certainly it is hugely different in terms of complexity. Is complexity sufficient to be a dividing line between a criterion of truth and something that's not a criterion of truth? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's part of the question that you have to ask. If criterions of truth are supposed to be things that function automatically and without injection of opinion from you, and in saying that, just because it's a matter of opinion, just because it's a matter of thinking about things in which you can be right or wrong, there's there's nothing wrong about that. It's an important process, I think, that everybody would recognize has to happen. But your criterion of truth are supposed to be something by which you test your thoughts and your opinions. If you see where I'm going there, if you've allowed your opinion to serve as a criterion of truth, then you've got a feedback loop, a self-reinforcing error where you no longer have the ability to distinguish between right and wrong because your own opinion you're considering to be absolutely true. So let's say it's dark outside and you hear some noises and you look out the window and you can't tell what kind of animal you're looking at. And it could be a cat, it could be a raccoon. Of course, raccoons are bigger than cats. But is this something that how we understand objects? Is this what anticipations are? So that if we got a flashlight and we shined it out the window to try to see what was going on, then we saw more information. We could then decide, oh, it's a raccoon or, oh, it's a cat. That is one of the ultimate questions, Calasini, which I think is not clear. If you follow Diogenes Laertius' description, you would say, yes, that is what anticipations are all about. However, is that the entire story? And where in the world does Valeus get his ideas about anticipations from? Because he's very clear. How many, as for myself, in terms of gods, how many gods have I seen in my life? I would say that answer is very close to zero. But Valeus is saying that even though I have not seen any gods, I was born with an innate disposition or anticipation of divinity to understand gods as being perfect beings, which neither experience pain nor inflict pain on other people. Diogenes Laertius is clearly focusing on experiences that you've had after you were born and things that you come into contact with. So you've come into contact with raccoons and cats in the past, all sorts of animals. And when you're looking outside in the dark and you don't know what's there, you're checking your memories and your concepts and you're attempting to 
yes, you would use the word anticipate. You're trying to anticipate. You're trying to guess. You're trying to guesstimate. You're trying to speculate about what's really there, even though you can't see it in detail. Is that related to anticipations? I would say certainly it is related to it. But is that the entire question of anticipations? Because maybe anticipations were active back when you saw the first cat or the first raccoon. You'd never seen one of them before. Maybe there's something going on in your mind that disposes you to bring these pictures of different type animals and put the word cat associated with it. And then these other animals, you associate the word raccoon with it. And maybe that's where the anticipation process is taking place at a more fundamental level. Because what DeWitt ends up arguing is that if you follow Diogenes Lurches and you simply say, I've seen three cats in my life, I've now got a picture of a cat. He's saying, sure, DeWitt says, sure, that's a process that happens. Nobody's questioning that. But that's not the entire picture would be DeWitt's point of view. From Valais's argument, you might not have ever come up with an idea of cat if you did not have this faculty of anticipations, which led you to assemble these pictures in the first place into a conception of a cat. And I want to stress, too, that DeWitt hits this point real hard. Talking about cats and dogs and raccoons and so forth is difficult enough. But talking about capitalism or communism or socialism or all these abstract ideas is much more complicated. Cats and dogs and lots of people go through life never worrying about this question we're talking about right now of whether there are anticipations and so forth. But we have gotten to this point of talking about it as a result of a long series of past studies and interests and things that we've pursued that we might never have gotten to if we had not had some disposition within ourselves to pursue that. And I think that's where DeWitt points to Valais and where Valais is saying something that is different from what Diogenes Laertius is saying. He's saying that there's something you're born with before you're exposed to these individual instances that leads you to assemble these new instances as they occur into something that becomes an understanding in your mind. But that if you did not have this faculty of organizing and pattern recognition in the first place, you would never have gotten to that point. But again, all of that's speculation because we don't have a text from Epicurus himself that really explains exactly what he meant by it. Again, one of DeWitt's arguments, though, is that Epicurus was looking for a faculty of truth Obviously, nature gave us our eyes and ears, the ability to touch and smell and taste that give us the ability to interact with the external world. DeWitt says that Epicurus was thinking that if nature gave us that faculty to interact with concrete things outside, did not nature also give us a faculty of thinking that disposes us to process thoughts in particular ways? One of the words that Lucretius uses is notio, notion. What does the word notion mean? When you say you have a notion of something, you're hinting, aren't you, that you're not really sure of what's there, but you are beginning to put pieces of evidence together that leads you to speculate in a particular direction. I looked it up. A conception of or belief about something. Children have different notions about the roles of their parents. That's in quotes an example of using the word notions. Synonyms, idea, belief, concept, conception, conviction, opinion, view, thought, impression, image, perception, mental picture, assumption, presumption, hypothesis, theory, supposition, feeling, funny feeling, suspicion, sneaking suspicion, hunch, understanding, awareness, knowledge, clue, inkling, 
the foggiest idea slash notion. That's just under point number one. Then it says number two, an impulse or desire, especially one of a whimsical kind. She had a notion to call her friend at work. Synonyms, impulse, inclination, whim, desire, wish, fancy, caprice, whimsy. And then number three is to do with an object such as items used in sewing, such as buttons, pins, and hooks. But anyway, it sounds like it's number, point number one. Well, that's probably a good example of just how words have so many different meanings and depends on the context in which their word is used as to exactly which meaning is appropriate. And I'm sure that the Greeks and the Romans themselves had as many different definitions and uses of these words as we do. And probably just making that observation is related to our subject, because with so many different connotations or implications of particular words, how do you know which one applies? And how do you reach a conclusion as to the proper application of a particular word in a particular circumstance? It happens instantaneously in our minds in a way that we really can't even explain. And to me, that's why I do agree with the direction that DeWitt goes in here, because what we're talking about to me is something that's much more complicated than I've seen five cats. And now in my mind, I've put together a picture of a cat. There's an awful lot going on that's not captured by that description of the process. So when I was reading the three possible definitions of the word notion, would it be considered that the anticipations is my ability to determine which is the correct definition in this discussion? Would that be a preconception or an anticipation? Of course, I don't know the answer to that, but I would say that you're going in the right direction. One thing that seems to me to be clear is that a conception is one thing. But a preconception or an anticipation or a prolepsis has got to be something else. Once you've formed a conception or a definition in your mind of a particular thing, then you can take that definition and use it just like when we talked with Martin about axioms and theorems and so forth. You, you've got a, a set definition that has a particular set of qualities that go along with it that you can then take and, and manipulate later on and use for many different important purposes. But how you get to that definition, how you choose what is essential and what is not, seems to me that those are much more difficult and complicated and basically a different question. A concept is one thing. The process of arriving at a concept seems to me to be very different. Again, just like when you see something in front of you, the recognition of what it is does not take place in the eye. The eye is giving you the information that you have to have in order to form a recognition, but the eye is not producing the recognition. Something else is going on in the brain that is a process of recognition and a process of assembling the concepts in the first place. And I believe that that's what we're talking about with anticipations. What I was about to say a moment ago before you made that comment was there are a few examples of use of this term in Epicurus. One of them is a statement that there is an innate anticipation of justice. Somehow justice involves anticipations in a unique kind of way. Also, divinity, this issue of the gods, somehow, especially divinity, is cited in the text as being a special type of anticipation, where Epicurus talks about that the anticipations of the many about the gods are wrong. That's an important thing to observe, too, is that apparently what you do with an anticipation doesn't mean that it's going to be right. 
Just like your sight could be producing a distorted picture of something, it doesn't tell you whether the tower is round or not. Maybe an anticipation doesn't tell you whether the idea is true or not. Maybe the anticipation is something that leads into the formation of an idea, just like the sight is something that leads into the formation of the idea of a tower. That doesn't really help tell us what an anticipation really is, but it tells us the areas in which Epicurus is talking about it. Divinity is clearly one. Justice is clearly one. And I think there's a third. This one's a little harder because it's in the negative. I believe it's said in the letter to Herodotus that there is not an anticipation as to time. So the only real clear three examples in Epicurus are references to God's justice and time which DeWitt points out, are very abstract issues. It's almost like this is a faculty that leads us to form abstract ideas. It's not the ideas themselves, necessarily, just like what we get from the eye doesn't give us the picture in our mind of a computer screen. So unfortunately, this is a very complicated subject that we just don't have enough text to be as clear on as we would like. And while we need to stay with the major applications or implications of it, which is, again, I think one of the biggest that... Epicurus did not believe in a blank slate. He believed that you're born with some kind of ability to do some kind of pattern recognition or concept formation that is not divine, it's not random, it's not subject to the problems that the Aristotelian or the Platonic views or the pure religious views would have. God doesn't plant ideas in your mind. God doesn't engrave ideas in your mind about what's right and wrong. So that's probably far enough for us to proceed today. We were just staying at this very introductory level. But it would make sense to give a little bit more of what DeWitt has said here. Page 143 of his book, quote, It's highly probable that Epicurus allowed even to certain animals, especially elephants, the possession of these embryonic anticipations of social virtues. The tendency of the day was to have recourse to the study of irrational creatures in order to learn the teachings of nature. It should be recalled, too, that not only was Epicurus very eager to have information of Pyrrho, who had been to India, the elder Pliny, who quotes three of the above writers, ascribed to elephants a sort of divination of justice, an excellent equivalent of the Epicurean anticipation. Pliny also ascribes to elephants the possession of pride, honesty, prudence, equity, and even religion. All of these fall squarely into the category of abstract notions where the anticipations belong. The term prolepsis was correctly rendered by Cicero as anticipatio or prinotio, and less precisely, though intelligently, by the elder Pliny as divinatio. It is wrongly rendered as concept by those who confuse the general concept of such things as an ox with the abstract idea of justice. One scholar prefers preconception, but perhaps preconcept would be preferable. It seems most advantageous, however, to adhere to anticipation because this is the meaning of the Greek word prolepsis. Okay, well, there we'll stop for the day. Hopefully, we'll have Joshua back with us next week, and we'll dig into the details of the subjects of anticipations and how they're used and the implications for us today. So thanks for your time today, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>